everyone. Welcome to this edition of the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie DiPolo, Senior Editor at BreastCancer.org. Today, our guest is Dr. Michael Stubblefield, who is Medical Director of Cancer Rehabilitation at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in New Jersey and the National Medical Director for Select Medical's Revital Cancer Rehabilitation Program. He is known around the world for his expertise in the identification, evaluation, and rehabilitation of pain and functional disorders caused by cancer and cancer treatments, particularly problems caused by radiation and chemotherapy. Named one of America's top doctors, America's top doctors for cancer, and the New York metro area's top doctors by Castle Connolly for many years, Dr. Stubblefield is an accomplished researcher and has published extensively on medical rehabilitation, oncology, pain management, palliative care, and neurophysiology. He serves on the editorial board of the journal Muscle and Nerve and is a peer reviewer for more than 30 journals. He also is the editor of Cancer Rehabilitation, Principles and Practice, the only comprehensive textbook in the field, and has also authored numerous review articles and book chapters in the field of cancer rehabilitation. He joins us today to talk about postmastectomy pain syndrome, and that's pain that occurs in the chest wall and the upper body after breast cancer cancer surgery, and ways to manage that pain. Dr. Stubblefield, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jamie. I believe this is our second podcast together, and it's really a pleasure to be back. Yes. And uh, again, thank you so much for your insights on neuropathy. I know people found that very helpful, and I'm sure that they are going to find this podcast just as helpful. Uh, to start, let's, uh, if you could just sort of explain what postmastectomy pain syndrome is and how it happens. I know it goes by several different names, so if you could kind of explain what's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of those diagnoses that is is still very much an evolution in terms of the components. I, I see a tremendous amount of it. I get a lot of patients with postmastectomy pain referred to me. And to be honest, my understanding of it has is, is changed dramatically since I, I first started in cancer rehab several years ago. So in its basic sense, this is chronic pain, meaning not just your post-surgical pain, which everybody is expected to get. The chronic pain that continues after the normal healing time for breast cancer now, or for breast cancer surgery. Now, it needs to be differentiated from other things that hurt after breast cancer, like shoulder dysfunction in, in breast cancer, but nice topic for another podcast, um, from pain from axillary cording, and a number of others. This is really largely a neuropathic pain disorder, which is, I think, the, the, the reason for much of the confusion. So anytime you do a mastectomy, you have to just by necessity cut through a number of nerves. If you do an axillary lymph node dissection, you cut through other nerves. And if you do reconstructive surgery, depending on the type you got, you damage other nerves still. So anytime you damage a nerve, you're going to have the potential of having pain in the distribution of that nerve. Um, sometimes this is caused by what we call neuromas, which are abnormal growth at the stump where the nerve was cut. Um, there's probably other inflammatory causes of this. Sometimes the pain is caused by spasms of muscles that are spasming in response to the nerve. So for most patients, it's pain in the chest that can be, you know, when it's neuropathic from, from the nerve sending false signals, it's described as sharp, burning, throbbing lancinating. It has these, what are characteristically neuropathic 
um, names to it. it. It can go down the arm, and particularly on the inner arm, where something called the intercostal brachial nerve is sacrificed, particularly during lumpectomy. But the, the big contribution, I think, that we're starting to see now is sometimes the motor nerves, not just the sensation nerves, but the motor nerves are, are damaged. And when that happens, the muscles that those nerves would normally go to can spasm and cause squeezing of the chest wall or cramping of the chest wall or cramping in the armpit. Um, and, and that, in its essence, those symptoms are what most people call postpastectomy. Now, I remember when you were putting this together and we were going over sort of the topics we'd be discussing within postmastectomy, that the concept of phantom pain came up. And, and that is also a component of postmastectomy syndrome. So if you think of somebody who loses a leg, you know, the, the reason they're having these phantom sensations like the limb is still there, or the limb's painful, or the limb's on fire, is because the nerves going to that limb have been severed and they get neuroma formation and, and some people are just unlucky for a variety of reasons and start having these phantom sensations. The breast is the exact same. So when you cut through those sensory nerves that, that supply the skin of the breast, those nerves may respond badly and start sending signals to the brain that there's still a breast there that can be itchy, burning, squeezing, painful, any number of, of sensations. And that is just one component of what some people feel in this post-mastectomy syndrome situation. Okay, thank you. So that, that answers one of my other questions. So phantom breast pain is all under this larger umbrella of post-mastectomy pain syndrome. It's sort of included in there. Exactly. It, it, you know, the way to think of it, it's a neuropathic symptom that lasts beyond the what would be the normal healing of the chest wall after mastectomy or reconstruction. So, and phantom breast pain is exactly one of those um, symptoms that you would have. So how common is this? I mean, it, it sounds very unpleasant, uh, painful. Uh, do we know how common it is and how long it lasts? So a great question. And, and the answer is really don't know. Um, you know, the, the there's very few good epidemiologic studies on postmastectomy. Um, it can be as much as a third of patients have some, probably around 10% have, you know, fairly severe and, you know, lower percentage, one or 5% have pain that, that is, is really intractable and very difficult to treat. But the truth is because our definitions for it are a bit of a moving target and it's not something that is really well studied, we don't have a great answer. Also, there's a number of different types of mastectomy and reconstruction procedures out there, and different surgeons have different techniques, so it may vary um, from institution to institution and surgeon to surgeon. Judging from your practice, is, is there any way to say roughly how long it lasts, or is that very much individualized as well? Very individualized. We'll, we'll have women who come in who've had it, you know, for three months since their surgery or six months since their surgery. And we may have women who come in who've had it for 10 years past their surgery. And then when we treat them, 
um, some women will um, respond almost instantly to the modalities and literally have cures. It's very funny. Some of the techniques we use, I've had women who don't show up again and, and I'm, you know, I'll get on the phone and just, you know, make sure everything's going okay. And they're like, Oh no, it's gone. So I didn't think I needed to come in, you know, and then you have other women where it's just one of the hardest things to treat. Everything I try is ineffective and it's still just all over the place. And I think that's the experience of a lot of us who see this with any regularity. Now, does this ever happen to men? I know male breast cancer is much rarer than breast cancer in women, but it seems like with a mastectomy in a man, nerves would still be cut. Absolutely. There, there's no reason why this wouldn't happen in men. But men, male breast cancer is 1% or so of all breast cancers treated. Um, so it's, it's much less likely. You know, if you have 100 women with this, statistically, you should have one man, man who has it. Um, but in my experience, it's been fairly rare. Also, the men tend not to get reconstructions. Uh, so the incidence is probably less. The reconstructions are probably responsible. Again, we don't know the number but responsible for precipitating this syndrome in a fairly significant number of people. So I have two questions then. Um, it, a lot of people on the site talk about this happening is in even the name is post-mastectomy pain syndrome. But you mentioned before you were talking about the nerves on the inside of the arm, especially with lumpectomy. So is, is this a risk after lumpectomy as well? Absolutely. It, it's really any surgery. So when you so, you know, the, the different types of breast surgery, the lumpectomy is the smallest and simplest. You take the tumor and then a zone of quote unquote normal tissue around the tumor and you look at it under the microscope to make sure it is in fact normal. But that can be quite a substantial piece of the breast. And to get to it, you often have to go through the skin and the nerve. Well, you always have to go through the skin and you often will go through a nerve. So if even a single nerve is damaged, that can cause it. Then with a lot of lumpectomies, it's not just the surgery, it's also the radiation. So when we radiate the bed that that tumor was in, that further damages the nerves and can cause, you know, in this case, we call it post-lumpectomy pain syndrome. But, you know, in general, we're calling it post-mastectomy pain syndrome, kind of regardless of, of what the breast surgery is. And, and this is where I've struggled is actually coming up with a name. This is the name that's used in the literature, the post-mastectomy pain syndrome, but coming up with a name that really is all-inclusive of the the vast variety of breast treatments that would cause the syndrome. Okay, that's helpful. Now, going back to reconstruction, um, in many cases, not always, but in many cases, reconstruction requires multiple surgeries. You know, if you have implant reconstruction and you have expanders, or even sometimes with um, reconstruction using your own tissue, there's still, you know, some touch-up surgeries that get done. Is it, I guess, I guess I'm wondering, is it the, the uh, amount of surgery, like the, the, the enormity of what is done that is perhaps more risky for the, the pain syndrome, or is it just certain people are more susceptible? Is it the number of surgeries? Um, how, how does that fit into all this? The answer is all of the above, but I think the biggest one, I know, very helpful, right? I think the biggest factor is really just the patient, and you cannot predict who's going to get this. I think it's kind of luck of the draw, same surgeon doing same exact surgery, and one patient gets it and the other 10 don't. 
And there's no good rhyme or reason that we can ascertain as yet what the cause is. More surgery is probably associated with a higher risk, but not always. You know, as you said, we've had women with just very small, simple lumpectomies who come out with significant, very difficult to treat post-mastectomy pain syndrome. And we'll have women who've had, you know, bilateral modified radical mastectomies with any kind of reconstruction and think, oh, no, I'm fine. So we really cannot always predict. The type of reconstruction probably makes a bit of a difference, um, but even there, we really don't have good data on it. So the tissue expanders is, is one good example. So, so you know, the, the, just to kind of you know educate the audience a little bit, there are many ways to reconstruct a breast. One of the and, and this I, I say one of the most common. It really is most common depending on where you are being treated, and in some cases, what country you're being treated in. Because I've traveled quite a lot internationally, and I see that there's big sort of ways of doing things in Singapore versus Italy versus the United States. So when I was at Sloan Kettering, before I came to Select Medical, the most common reconstruction there, I think, was just doing implants. An implant is you take a basically an artificial breast um, implant, but it's a special one that has a port on it, so you can inject a needle through the skin into the port and put saline on it. You put it under the pectoral muscle. That's the big muscle under the breast. Like when you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger's chest and he has that, those giant muscles, those are the pectoral muscles. So you put them under the pec muscle. The problem with that is when you put them under the pec muscle, the nerve that goes to the pectoral muscle called the greater pectoral nerve can be damaged. It can be stretched. It can be irritated. So those implants in some people, both do fine, but in some can cause a lot of spasm of the, the pectoral muscle. You would not get that same spasm of the pectoral muscle if you're doing other types of implants where you don't put a, 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 an implant underneath the pec. Some of the other implants that you describe where you use your body's own tissue. So for instance, a tram flap, a transverse rectus abdominis flap. You take muscle just at, right next to the belly button along with the fat next to the belly button. You get a little tummy tuck with it. You take all of that out as a free flap and sew it into where the breast used to be, or you could do it as what's called a pedicle flap, meaning it's still connected to its own blood supply and it's sort of tunneled under the skin and, you know, and, and sewn in. Those don't tend to make the pectoral muscle spasm because you didn't go in where the pectoral nerve is, but now you can have abdominal wall issues as part of your post-mastectomy syndrome. Um, you know, depending, there's another one called a tram flap, trans, uh, uh, I already said tram, I'm sorry, lat, lat flap, latissimus dorsi flap, where you take part of the big muscle of the back and you turn that around and use it to construct a, a, a pec. Now, all of a sudden, you can have back issues um, as, as a result of the implant uh, or of the, the tissue graft being taken. And sometimes those are also used with an implant. So it, it gets a little bit uh, confusing in terms of the number of types, but each one has its own set of evils, if you will, in terms of the type of post-surgical pain issues that you can have. That, that's kind of what I thought, but um, I just it's certainly good to have that confirmed. And from what you're saying, too, it sounds like there aren't really any risk factors that you could kind of flag somebody and say, we think you're at higher risk for this. Here's what you need to know. 
Yeah, there have been risk factors that have been documented, but I think a lot of them are very idiosyncratic. So patients who have other pain syndromes before this are more likely to have it. Younger patients are more likely to have it. And there's a few others out there, but again, the the risk is low and it, it tends to be idiosyncratic. So I don't I don't see any of the risk factors as being at this point in time able to have us guide patients to having certain kinds of mastectomies or certain kinds of reconstruction. So I, I don't find the risk factors that useful yet, the ones that have been sort of softly defined. Okay, well, that's good to know. Um, so probably the most important question that I'm gonna ask is, so what are the treatments for this? How, how can this be eased or uh, you know, made bearable? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, the answer is it depends. So, so there's two sort of distinct pain syndromes within post-mastectomy that are by big subheadings are big of, of post-mastectomy. One is this neuropathic pain. So that's the burning, shooting, lancinating type of pain. And also phantom breast pain I would put under the neuropathic umbrella. Then there's the muscle spasm that I talked about with the implants going under the pec and also just the general, you know, um, irritation and damage that can be done from the mastectomy itself. And that is the squeezing, tight, pulling sort of pain. And they're often both together. And one of the main things I have to do when I see a patient is try to decide, are we dealing with pure nerve pain? Are we dealing with pure muscle spasm pain? Or do we have a combination of both, which is very common. And some of the ways I tell that is just their description of the pain. Also, if I squeeze the muscles that are likely to be affected and, you know, poke and prod on them, part of your physical exam, and those muscles are tender, then it tells me those muscles are probably spasming. So regardless of the type, the initial treatment is almost always a specialized type of physical therapy, which involves something called myofascial release. That just means the muscle and the fascia. The fascia is the connective tissue that surrounds the muscle. Both the muscle and the fascia can get damaged and scarred during any surgical procedure, particularly mastectomy, reconstruction, lymph node dissection, all of those. So therapists who have special training in, in our program, our revital program, we've specifically trained them in, in these techniques for cancer because they're a little different from what you might use in other places. You need to understand the difference between the types of mastectomies and reconstructions and the other issues that go along with breast cancer. They'll use these special techniques to try to unentrap the nerve. So if you picture in your head a wire that is bound in concrete and the concrete doesn't move, or the wire that's bound in some other hard substance, the myofascial release is trying to get all of the concrete, the hard tissue around that wire to soften up. And when it softens up, there's less pressure on the nerve, the nerve sends less false signals, and that helps decrease both the neuropathic symptoms that we described and the muscle spasm symptoms that we described. So that's kind of number one, two, and three in our list of things to do is the, the, the special physical therapy with the special manual techniques, particularly this myofascial release. And so people out there listening who have this, what you want to do is you want to find a therapist who preferably has both cancer experience and myofascial technique um, experience. But if, if you have to have one, you really want the biofascial therapist to try to work on you with these techniques. So from the physician point of view, 
you know, I don't do those manual techniques. Um, I don't even pretend to know how to do them. That's why we have all these amazing physical therapists out there. The things I can do are more medically related. So medication. So there are a number of nerve stabilizing medications that in certain patients will help dramatically with this. So things like um, Lyrica pregabalin is the generic name. Durantin, gabapentin is the generic name. Deloxetine, Cymbalta, um, certain muscle relaxants. These medications sometimes can help with the neuropathic pain, and particularly in the case of pregabalin, gabapentin, Neurontin, and Lyrica, respectively, it can help with the spasm component. So from my point of view as a physician, almost all of the patients coming in to see me will initially go see one of my specialized physical therapists, and we will have a discussion about if they want to try medications, understanding that not all people want to even try a medicine, much less have the potential of being on it for any period of time. It is sometimes necessary to rotate the medicines to try different ones to find one that is effective for the patient and agrees with them. Um, and that will often be the second, third visits. And some patients just don't respond to anything. If the medications and the therapy haven't worked, then we start talking about procedures. So I have a couple of procedures that can be effective in post-mastectomy pain syndrome. One of them are intercostal nerve blocks. So what I do is try to identify the little stumps, the neuromas where the nerves were cut, and I inject lidocaine or lidocaine-like medicine. I usually use pipivacaine, lasts longer, and a, a small amount of a local steroid right on top of the nerve. And that helps decrease the inflammation, soften up the tissue, and in com combination with the therapy, sometimes helps. When I have patients who have um, that squeezing spasm pain, uh, like the pectoral muscle, that big muscle on Arnold Schwarzenegger that the implant is under, when that muscle is spasming, I can actually put Botox in it. Botox, the, the reason, yeah, the reason ladies like it for their wrinkles is what it does is it poisons where the nerve talks to the muscle in a reversible way. It goes away given enough time. So your wrinkles go away simply because the nerve can't make the muscle spasm. We use it in spasticity, like people who've had strokes or cerebral palsy, also to relax the muscles. So guess what happens if I have a spasming pectoral muscle or the serratus muscle on the, on the side of the body? If I put the Botox in it, it not only relaxes the muscle, it actually has a, an analgesic, a pain-relieving effect as well. So the Botox can be very effective um, in, in the right type of patient. And it's not an approved Botox indication. It's an off-label indication. I bill it as a dystonia because it is a, an abnormal spasm from, from nerve damage like other dystonias. And, you know, if, if in some patients, it works really, really well. Wow. So how both, I know that both nerve blocks and the, the Botox, as you said, will eventually wear off. Do you know roughly how long that would last? Yeah. So, so the nerve blocks are anywhere from, you know, lasting uh, until the lidocaine wears off or the pipicaine wears off in like eight hours uh, to lasting a month or longer. The Botox is different. It can last three months. And I've and the patients who, who who I treat don't show up. The ones that I'm remembering are all Botox patients. For some reason, once I get those muscles to stop spasming, in some patients, again, this is not everybody by any stretch, but in some patients, it's been really just remarkable that you know you're basically resetting the the nervous system, and the patients do well for very long periods of time, if not indefinitely. But that's really rare. That's not the rule. <laughs> okay. And I, I interrupted with that question. Were, are there any other 
um, treatments that, that you as a physician would try or procedures, I guess I should say? Yeah. So, so yes, the, you know, there are more ablative procedures, meaning the, the Botox and the intercostal block, those are reversible, right? They're kind of, if they don't work, it's no harm, no foul. But the more ablative procedures where you'd use like radio frequency to ablate the nerve, that's a much more permanent thing. And if you get it wrong, whatever you have, you kind of have afterwards. So if it's major pain worse, your pain's worse. Um, but I have seen those done in patients with, with mixed results, like all of these procedures. And then there's things like acupuncture, absolutely, that can be very useful for some people. Other sort of therapy techniques like mind-body relaxation techniques, absolutely very useful. Um, but there's, uh, there's a nerve stimulator that was just approved by the FDA that I am looking forward to trying. It's actually, I, again, I've never done this on post-mastectomy, but I have several patients who've been refractory. I'm going to try, and I put two little small electrodes um, under the skin, and you leave them there for a month, and you hook them up to a very small little pulse generator that stimulates, and that may be a way of retraining the nervous system to behave in some of these patients, so I'm very excited to try that as well. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like almost like a TEN system that people use if they have like uh, herniated discs in their backs and things like that. Exactly. And of course, we do TENS and electrical in therapy, but I don't think those are as effective as the myofascial. This is different because of the duration of the time that you would be using. And you'd basically be using it effectively continuously for a month. So that will have, you know, very different physiologic effects on the nerve than just TENS where you're doing it for shorter periods of time. So in addition to some of these things, like I'm wondering, in addition to the, the myofascial release that a, a physical therapist would do, or even in addition to a nerve block or, um, or Botox that you would do, can a person help herself by, are there stretches that you recommend for someone with this syndrome are there exercises can those help too no i not i i would never recommend that somebody just go out and do these on their own i really want them to have a preferably experienced as well as skilled physical therapist try to walk them through the sorts of things that they would do a lot of what you need to do is not intuitive and that's why the therapist is there to try to guide you into the right thing. And what people tend to do is they do the stuff that's easy and works well, right? And, and that's not, you know, always the things that need to be done for this. So stretches um, and conditioning exercises and strengthening exercises absolutely would be a part of a comprehensive rehabilitation program. But I really would like those guided by a, a licensed physical therapist. Okay, that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and before we wrap up, I some people have reported that they have itching in addition to the pain. Now, is that common? And how is that treated any differently? Or is that still a, a nerve symptom? Yeah, exactly. Great question. It's just a part of the nerve symptom. So, so whenever you damage a nerve that's going to a patch of skin wherever, when you damage it, what happens is those nerve fibers just start firing. And they and it's kind of random the way they fire based on how you were injured and your own sensibilities and, uh, and a number of factors we really don't know. So what they're doing is they're sending false signals, like a short-circuiting wire, into the spinal cord and up to the brain. The brain is being met with this garbage input. It doesn't know what to do with it. So it's going to process it in the closest sort of analogous thing 
that that it senses. So it may process it as pain, it may process it as numbness, even though it's not true numbness, or it may process it as itching, or it may process it as electricity. So so itching and phantom pain and all of those are really part and parcel of just nerve being damaged and sending false signals into the into the brain. Okay, so it sounds like the treatment would be the treatment would be the same. That makes sense. So to sort of summarize for everybody, um, what would you say are the three main points if someone is suffering from postmastectomy pain syndrome? Um, what would you want her to know? So the first one is to to get an accurate diagnosis. There's a lot of other causes of pain in the upper body other than postmastectomy syndrome after breast cancer treatment. It can be a frozen shoulder. It can be cords in the axilla. Uh, these little fibrous bands that you can get. It can be a number of things. So you first want to make sure that it is post-mastectomy pain syndrome. And, you know, a pain specialist, most will have some knowledge of this. Rehab doctors like myself usually should have. The best would be to go to a a cancer-specific rehab physician if you can to get the diagnosis. The second thing is you do have it. You really want, as your first starting point, to seek out a physical therapist who's knowledgeable both in cancer and myofascial release. That's that's really the first place to start. And for the majority of my patients, that does it, right? Particularly early on. Earlier is better with the treatment of this. As it becomes chronic, it always almost always gets harder to treat. Um, and then the third is be patient. You know, it, it often takes a lot of time to find, for particularly the refractory patients, a combination of treatment modalities that is going to make your pain better. Excellent advice. Thank you so much. Um, I think this will be very helpful for a lot of people who are suffering this this very, very troubling side effect. Thank you so much, Jamie. It's really an honor to be here, and I appreciate being able to talk to the audience.